Welcome to the House of Labor. This is Studio 371, the podcast. Here on Mighty Union Digital Originals, your source for information and insight about our union. We're broadcasted from New York City. Now here's your host, SSCU Local 371 President, Anthony Wells. Well, good evening, and welcome to Studio 371, our podcast for information, entertainment, and to share and promote knowledge and promote the well-being of our members. This is the first one of the year, episode six, and this is going to be a special night because we have some special guests, and I'm looking forward to it. We're celebrating Black History Month, and next month we're celebrating Women's History Month, and we are blessed to have the combination of the two with our guests. So Women's History Month is a celebration of women's contribution of history, culture, and society, and has been observed annually in the month of March in the United States in 1987. Y'all know the history of black history. Black history is American history. And we still celebrate achievements that are long overdue. So tonight, our special guests are going to talk about being the first and what it means and what comes with that. And they're also going to talk about them. You know, when we were, I got no trick questions, y'all. I don't got no trick questions, but we're going to have you talk about yourself. And guess how we're going to do this? We're going to start by having you introduce yourselves. So I go to our first DA, and, and God bless her, from the Boogie Down Bronx, a Bronx district attorney. They, you know, I can do my ex, right? Bronx district attorney, Darcel Clark. Thank you, uh, Anthony Wells, and thank you to 371. You know, you guys hold a special place in my heart, being that you're the largest union in my office. <laughs> so I don't get to do this work without 371. So when you asked me to do this, it was an honor and a privilege to do it because I'm just giving back to what you all give to me each and every day. So thank you so much. Yes, I am Bronx District Attorney Darcel Clark, now in my seventh year as district attorney, serving in my second term. I'm a daughter of the Bronx, raised my whole life here in the Bronx, product of NYCHA, public housing, Soundview Houses, product of New York City public schools, first in my family to go to college, dedicated my life to public service, starting out as the assistant DA in this office for 13 years, 16 years on the bench as a judge of the criminal and the Supreme Courts, as well as the appellate division, and now seven years as your district attorney. It's an honor and a privilege to live in the work in the same community that I serve. And of course, married to an NYPD detective who's in his 39th year with NYPD. So I got the real law and order in my house. There's nothing you can ask me that I don't know. So thank you for having thank me. You. And real civil service. Out of Brooklyn, out of Brooklyn. Our uh, silly woman and the Bro and the Brooklyn Democratic Party chair, my niece Bishop Hermanet. Thank you, thank you so much, President Wells. How you doing, Anthony? Local three seventy one. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you and these dynamic women. Our district attorney from the Bronx, Darcel Clark, and our beautiful borough president of the Bronx, Vanessa Gibson. I got to give it up to the Bronx. You know. 
<laughs> but Brooklyn, <laughs> Brooklyn is the largest, the biggest, the baddest, the toughest. And uh, we've been doing some great things out there. Uh, I am Assemblymember Rodney Spichot. I represent parts of uh, Brooklyn, which is Flatbush, East Flatbush, Midwood, Dittmers Park. And I chair the Brooklyn Democratic Party. I'm the first Black woman to chair the uh, Brooklyn Democratic Party. Um, I was raised and born in Brooklyn, went to public schools my whole entire life, uh, went to state schools. I had different careers from a math teacher to an engineer to, um, to a Wall Street banker and now a legislator and a law school student hoping to do some uh, uh, criminal uh, cases and intern with the Bronx DA. <laughs> but it's such a pleasure to be here again amongst beautiful women to talk about us, to talk about our Black people, our lives, our community, what we're facing and being part of the struggle. So, so thank you for having me here. Oh, thank you. Now, the newest person, but not certainly in terms of her experience and what she's been doing with her career, but definitely making inroads from the boogie down Bronx again. The, the boogie, the boogie down. down Bronx Borough President Vanessa Gibson. Uh, thank you so much, Anthony, and it's good to be on your show. Shout out to the whole local 371, DC 37, always representing the issues that matter to New Yorkers. I, too, like the district attorney, I have a majority of my staff who are local 371 <laughs> as well uh, in the office of the Bronx Borough President. But I'm always excited to be in a space to talk about my work, my history, my background, and being elected for such a time as this. And it's always great to be on with my sisters, with our district attorney, Darcel Clark, who I work hand-in-hand hand with on all matters related to public safety in the Bronx. And of course, my sister, Assemblywoman Rodnice Bishat Hermelin, uh, the chairwoman of the Brooklyn Democratic Party. I'm so grateful, Anthony, I have to say, that this is actually one opportunity when the Bronx can outnumber Brooklyn, <laughs> because that never happens. And I'm always surrounded by Brooklyn people everywhere I, I go. I and then usually it's Darcel and I, and we're like, well, hey, the Bronx is here, we here, we here. And so I, I appreciate that. But but it's just a lot of love. The Bronx and Brooklyn have so much in common. Uh, we have so many great things that we're both doing. And I really appreciate, you know, the space to talk about our work. And it's Black History Month. And we certainly want to recognize all of our pillars and pioneers, uh, Black Americans that have paved the way for us, right? We're standing on their shoulders just to recognize their incredible labor and the reason why we're here. So I am the 14th Bronx Borough President. I am the first ever African-American and female elected Bronx Borough president. I'm excited to be elected to serve the beautiful borough of the Bronx. I am in my seventh <laughs> week, but who's counting? Yes. Uh, it's been a lot going on in the city and, of course, in the Bronx these past few weeks. But certainly someone who is no stranger to hard work. I served as a member of the city council. I chaired the Committee on Public Safety was one of the, uh, the leaders in the city council that really led the effort on so many important programs that saved residents and families from eviction, supporting tenants and young people and homeowners and gender equity and pay parity and maternal mortality. So many issues that I know my colleagues all support. And I'm really grateful for this opportunity. And, you know, I look at my life, I look at my journey in public service 
four years as an assembly member and eight years as the council member and now serving as the borough president. It's really because of those that invested in my life, uh, including my mother, who is my queen, and the late, great Aurelia Green, who is my political mother in all things and my mentor, someone who gave me a chance as a student at the university at Albany as an intern and invested in me, took me by the hand and never let me go. I give credit to these women, these incredibly strong, dynamic Black women who really invested in me and loved on me and planted the seed that you see before you today. So I think all of us in elected office, it's our job, it's our season, it's our time to continue to plant seeds in our respective boroughs to make sure that we are grooming the next chairwoman, the next assemblywoman, the next district attorney, and the next borough president. So I'm grateful to be on your show, and it's all about <laughs> Black women. All right. So let me say this to you. Because of scheduling conflicts, we would have had two other first, because to me, this is called the first, okay? So we would have had two, our Attorney General, Patricia James, scheduling, got messed up, and the first uh, woman, black woman, uh, Speaker of the Speaker. City Council, Adrian Adams. So mm -hmm. we're, that the whole program was around first. So then what we're going to do, I'm going to ask you some questions. I'm going to give you a chance, actually, to expound, and, and anybody can answer this. Why politics? Why leadership? I guess Vanessa kind of touched on it a little bit. Or a lot, but but let's start with you, DA. Let's start with you, Don. I'm gonna call. First, first of all, you're all on first name basis with me, Darcel. Please. <laughs> why? Why? I mean, why leadership? I guess. I mean, it just started from when I was a kid. People told me you always fighting for people. Yo, you got a big mouth. Every report card I got in school had. I always was a great student. Got great grades, but mm -hmm. the, you know how they do the comments at the bottom. It's like <laughs> she talks too much. Always talking, too talkative. You know, that's because I always was like getting my point across or always fighting for people who couldn't speak up for themselves. So I guess that was just inherently in me that that's where I should go. And, you know, as I was growing up, like I said, I was the first in my family to go to college. So I didn't really know anybody that went to college. I didn't know any lawyers. I didn't, you know, I didn't know anybody like that. So I was like, what careers could I go to into that would be a natural fit for the person who I was or who I could become? And I was always interested in politics. You know, um, back then it was social mm -hmm. studies, you know, in, in school. So I always liked the social sciences, the regular natural sciences. I got a headache every time I opened the science book. So I knew I wasn't going to be a doctor or anything like that. I knew it was going to be something in public service. So I thought that politics or political science would be a good foundation for me. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer and I had to learn how to do that, you know, because my family was great, stood behind me, whatever I wanted to do, they were going to be there for me, but they couldn't teach me how to navigate to get to where I wanted to go. So that's where the community came in, looking at community resources to help me navigate. And the schools, you would think naturally the school would be an excellent place to do that since I spent most of my time in school and I was a good student. But when I was in high school and I told the teacher that I wanted to be a lawyer, she told me that I should be a secretary. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a secretary. That's a fine prof profession if that's what you wanted to be. I told that woman I wanted to be a lawyer. So ever since she told me that I couldn't, <laughs> that meant that I had to. So that's what made me a leader because every time somebody told me that I couldn't do something or I shouldn't do something. That's why I had to do it. 
I went to Boston College. They say, you can't right. go to oh, Boston. Yeah. You know, back mm-hmm. then, that was in the late 70s. They were turning over school buses and, you know, still trying to desegregate. You, you're a black girl. You can't go to Boston. Well, that meant I had to go to Boston. <laughs> and I went there and I graduated. And from there, I knew that I knew I needed something more culturally diverse, something more like the background I came from. I said I either wanted to go to law school in a black city or go to a black school. So I did both. I went to Washington, D.C., and I went to Howard <laughs> Law School. And that's where I met Tish James. So okay. we were in law school together. And, you know, the rest is history from there. Howard produces some great lawyers. So just being a Howard grad and the legacy, and you talk about standing on the shoulders, Vanessa, of such mm-hmm. great lawyers that came out of Howard, I knew that's all I wanted to do. And I knew that I wanted to do public service. I could have went to any of these big law firms, but I wanted to come back to my community and serve. And that's what I did, starting in the DA's mm-hmm. office. And you know, Quick question, up in Boston, did you know DJ Clement Smiley? Did you know him? <laughs> Yes, yes, I do. He and yeah. he pledged Iota Phi Theta, and I was a sweetheart. Yeah, he, I know this unfortunately, much. passed yes, away last year, but he uh, was my classmate in high school. Yeah. So, and, and I think we all yeah. have one thing in common. Oh, we all I were told we talk too much when we when we're younger. Shut up. Who's talking <laughs> to you, uh, Vanice? Yeah. Wait, Darcel, are you are you are you in the sorority? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm me five me. Although they all. They all tell me I should join. Oh, grad chapter. I was like, no, I love you all. I love them all. I'm an honorary member I see of you all. wearing the right color, okay? Oh, you need to be So obviously you know you're a Delta. Right? I got it. With that I big get D. it. <laughs> exactly, the big D. <laughs> you know, I tried, I tried to join them, but they kicked me out. They said, you not can't be a member. You'll be glad I want to be a part of you. Anyway, my niece, why politics? Why, why leadership? You know... It's funny because I'm listening to um, to Madam Darcel Clark and, you know, talk, you know, talk, she, she, she highlighted about her love for public um, pub, being a public servant. And I think about me, you know, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I'm in leadership because obviously there's work to do. But my life has transformed and transitioned to so many different entities and walks of life. I mean, I was this little girl who was raised in a household where no one really spoke English. And, um, and, you know, English was my second language. Um, I, I I was a special needs student. I was a special ed. I was failing school. Um, and I just didn't get it, you know, I just didn't get it. And it was till one day, uh, when I got hit by a car, almost lost my life, um, I had, for the first time, um, the opportunity to have a one-on-one instructor who, you know, read to me, had me do math problems. And at that moment, it changed my life. And I don't know if that was God. God said that, you know, you're not going to be the dancer that I want you to be, that you want to be, or the the gymnast. There's something that's missing. And and I got hit. And full circle... um, I I was able to take that experience and got out of special ed. I became I graduated top of my school, and the rest is history. Became a math teacher, engineer, as I mentioned. Um, I spent some time in Chicago 
traveled to Japan and China while I was in Chicago, but I, I was able to reconnect with a lot of my Black roots because a lot of the people in Chicago are from the South. And that's where I, I, I actually pledged. And that opportunity um, gave me um, an opportunity to be on political campaigns because that's where uh, Obama um, ran for U.S. Senate. Now, this is before anybody knew who Obama was, but I had joined the Democratic Party over there while I was doing all this other stuff um, in Chicago. And that gave me the first opportunity to understand what politics was. So when I left Chicago in 2005 and came back here, um, that street that I got hit by, um, with, because there was no, there was no street light. Um, I kind of wanted to get back into the community, work with my black association and said, you know, why don't we have this traffic light? I was hit many, many years ago and we still don't have a traffic light. We have a school across the street. And really that whole experience got me involved with Kevin Parker's campaign, um, got I decided to run for district leader. Um, and again, it was like full circle. And all of those experiences that, and the trauma that I went through really helped me understand that there's no other thing for me but public servant. You know, I, I, you know, working in Wall Street was very difficult because they don't believe in public servant. <laughs> they don't believe in you going to church. <laughs> I had to work seven days a week. <laughs> and I was like, what? I can't go to church? That was a problem. <laughs> but um, but again, coming back, um, I was able to use all these skills that I've learned, take it to a different level where I was integrating into my community, reconnecting to my community, because again, I was disconnected. I was disconnected from the Caribbean community. I was disconnected from the Haitian community. And I started speaking my first tongue, which is Haitian Creole. And I used that to get people more civically engaged, to get um, people out to vote, to help solve their problems, to tell them, you know, why being involved and how you can get to your elected officials is important. And since then, we've done a number of, of things um, in, in the community from, you know, senior housing, um, we established a little Haiti, um, we have, I've been champion, um, um, minority women business enterprise. So getting more black folks in trying to get access to the $20 billion of government, um, um, opportunities and government contracts. Um, so I just felt that it was time to serve. And I felt that just the different walks in uh, of my life have led me to this position. And so when it was time to take on this role as the Democratic Party chair, I did not want it. Um, I just didn't feel that it was something that was for me. Um, but it was something that was called on for me to do. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a lot of work. It's tough. Uh, but I took it on because I didn't need to save the Democratic Party. Uh, we were losing the Brooklyn Democratic Party. Um, it, there was no funding. Um, we're losing our leadership. Um, but what was very important to me is to make sure that our black electorate wasn't disappearing. Um, that was very important. Um, and so I felt that I needed to stay on, you know, despite the haters, out the there? haters despite the, haters out the there attacks, despite all that. No. What? <laughs> no, <laughs> they, they don't so. appreciate your Just public service that you, that you guys are doing or that we do. 
No, 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 they don't. They don't because they, they you know, uh, you have people out there from this role as a Democratic Party chair. You have people out there who want to take the party over um, because, you know, it's all about power. And you have people who partner with other people um, and because they're not used to black women um, taking charge and doing a good job about it. You know, I came in to clean up, turn things around, but also get more people involved. You know, people who looks like us. I felt that um, we didn't know, especially black folks, minority, you know, Asian community, uh, South Asian community, Latino community. They were involved in the party. And so this was an opportunity to um, be the face and bring those people in, turn things around. We built a social platform, a social media platform where people can attack us. <laughs> um, we've engaged, we've raised money, we've helped people get elected. But the more important thing is that there's a movement out there to um, take us out, take us out as black people. Um, you know, there's lots of gentrification that's going on. And, and when that happens, our voices will not be heard our people would not be represented in the way it should be um, because our power, our structure, our political structure is broken down. So my job right now, and it's a headache, is to keep our political structure at a level that is sustainable so that we can continue to elevate people who are a reflection of our community. And that includes uh, people of color. Appreciate that whole that thought. Now you actually started your reason how you got why you got here, Vanessa. You want to add to that? You had some mm -hmm. obviously some 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 uh, awesome mentors. Uh, you want to you want to add to yeah, that? Yeah, definitely. Sure. So, in the words of our distinguished colleague from three seventy two, if you stay ready, you don't you have go. to get ready. And one thing I've mm -hmm. learned in public service is you always have to be ready. Uh, for the unexpected, for the haters to emerge. I mean, the running for office of Bronx Bar president was one of the most challenging campaigns I've ever faced in my life. Not that I haven't had challenging campaigns, but I've had a lot of support. But, you know, there were a lot of obstacles against me. And some of them were, you know, people that lived in the Bronx. Some of them were elected mm -hmm. officials. And I think the greatest fear that some people have is the power of a Black woman and Black women have been under the radar. We have been disrespected. We have been denied so much for generations. But yet, during the election time, when you need the victories, like we needed Georgia to capture, guess who saves the day? Black women. And, and so to me, these elections just remind so many folks of what Black women can do. When you give us the ability, when you give us the titles, when you elect us to these roles, let us show you what we can do. People judge us so much without even knowing who we are just because we're Black women. Even when Darcel ran for district attorney and all of the experience that she has had as an ADA, as a member of the judiciary, people still said she wasn't qualified. But what they really meant was she was a Black woman, right? <laughs> and the same thing goes for me running for borough president. And so to me, it's like, this has always been a calling for me. And I do give a lot of credit to Aurelia Green because that internship at the New York State Assembly was my introduction to government, to state government, and just the entire public sector. And I've always said that maybe this is God planning for me. You know, sometimes you hear the, the notion of you planning and God laughs. I really wanted to be a lawyer. I was heading to law school, taking my Kaplan courses. And then this internship came. And after I interned for Aurelia and graduated, she gave me a job. 
And I ended up working for her for a number of years and I started to like the work I did. But I had a good boss. Aurelia was the type of boss that allowed you to learn, make mistakes. She thrust you out into the arena and said, you have to learn. And so I learned that from her. And now as a manager, as a leader, I do the same for my staff because you should be better as a public servant uh, when you leave than the way you came to me. Uh, and so I've always said that this work is never a nine to five. I mean, I, ca- I can't even tell you the last time that I left this office at five o'clock. Never. That hasn't happened in a while. I can't tell you what weekend I just haven't had to work. Um, so to me, it's just always been a calling. And you have to have a real unique skill for this. You have to have a real passion. You have to love people genuinely. And you have to be able to be a team player. You have to realize that while you may stand and sit on that pedestal, you have a whole village that surrounds you. And right, and this is about mobilizing and this is about creating that space for so many other young people to follow. I often say in many of my speeches, you can't be what you can't see. And for me and Darcel and Rodney's, we represent the future. We represent our ancestors' wildest dreams and aspirations. They died for us to be here. And I am always mindful of that. So I feel like being borough president and creating my own footprints in history it allows other people to step up and follow in my footsteps and actually create their own history. Well, in this you know, you segue. What law school you went to? Law school? <laughs> I ain't gone. I stayed in the you, assembly. Uh, could you, could you, I was a legislative First aide. of all, could you segue in, in, into in the purse? I was going to ask you what the challenges of, of, of being a woman and being a black woman, and you guys have already said that, really. Okay, now you, 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 mm-hmm. you are first. So... If you had to say one, what's one your, and by the way, you're not the future. You're the now. Okay? I'm going to tell young people too. <laughs> you're the now. You're not the future borough president. You are the borough president. And, and all you are there now. <laughs> so, you know what? You're going to help build the future. But she might be future mayor. That's what she's talking That's about. That's another point. But she may be. Now, listen, <laughs> my niece, saying. you know what? <laughs> and, she, and listen, any one of you might be a future man. God bless you. <laughs> or governor or president of the or, United or anything, States. Or anything or, that you... Know, whatever, whatever we want to be, because we know that, you know, the sky is the limit and the yes. limit is the sky. Right, right. Like, we're not going to let things hold us back. And I think that's an example of what you see on here now, you know. Like, I always thought that I might be the district mm-hmm. attorney, but it was always like, oh, I got to wait my turn. And, you know, Rob Johnson was the, was the DA before me. I worked for Rob for 10 years as an assistant DA. I never thought I would run against Rob Johnson. And by the way, thank you. Opportunity would have it, <laughs> as God would have it. It just put me in a space where it was my time. And, you know, that was not an easy decision to make, leaving the bench. Because let me tell you something, I had made it to the appellate division. And people say, why do you, you know, want to be the Bronx DA? I said, well, let me think about it. I said, there's 1,300 New York State judges but there's only one Bronx DA. I like those odds. Let me take that job and let me make it something that it has never been. Let me take that office into the 21st century. Let me take this job so people will know that we have to do prosecution differently than we did before. When I started in the office in the 80s, it was nail them and jail them. The cops was arresting everybody in our community locking them up, and prosecutors were charging them. And we were going to trial, and we were getting convictions, and we were asking for the maximum sentence. I did that. That's the work that I did. 
So I have to own some of the mass incarceration that's happening now. I'm not afraid to do that as a prosecutor because back then that's what we thought led to public safety. We know that that's not the answer now. Do we, we have to do this a totally different way. We have to talk about putting resources in the community so people don't come into the criminal justice system in the first place. I believe in prevention. We have to talk about even people that make their way into the criminal justice system. I teach my assistants, let's look at who this person is and how they got here and why are they here and what will justice mm-hmm. look like in this particular case. Mm-hmm. Not every case is the same. We have to treat individuals as they are, who they are and what they need. So, you know, creating off-ramps out of the criminal justice system if somebody has a mental health problem or drug addiction or or they're just poor or they don't have jobs or they didn't have a proper education. There are a lot of things that are missing in black and brown communities that we need to make sure we have those resources. And I'm glad Vanessa's my partner because we are going to do our thing in this borough to make sure that we are not forgotten and that we get the resources that we need. So many times we're first in everything bad and last in everything good. That's really about to turn around now <laughs> I that I got a new, another partner in Borough mm-hmm. Hall that's going to make sure that we get the resources that we need. But in my office, you know, I'm doing that. I created a Conviction Integrity Bureau to look back at the convictions to make sure that, you know, no no one is sitting in state prison who was wrongfully convicted. I'm not afraid to do that as a DA. Some people say, well, the jury has spoken and that's it. No, the jury has spoken, but it could be wrong. The message they received was wrong. And it's my job to make it right. So not only do I wrong that right that happened, but also to learn from the errors that took place at that time and push that forward so we never do those things again. I started a community justice bureau, which is our alternatives to incarceration, to make sure that people get the help that they need, even though they come into, you know, the criminal justice system. You know, so many things that, you know, I, I, I built in here so that I can make sure that my lawyers are trained, that my professional staff, Anthony, your members, to make sure that I train them up, that I lift them up. It's not about keeping people down. It's about lifting communities up. And every single person that works in my office helps me work on behalf of the people of the Bronx because they Mm -hmm. needed a DA that they deserved that was going to fight for them to make sure that we can have public safety and reform and fairness at the same time. That's what I work to do each and every day. And I use all the tools in my toolkit to make that happen. So I'm working prevention. I'm working, you know, alternatives um, to incarceration. But I'm unapologetic about being a DA and knowing that it's my job to also make sure this community is safe. And that means sometimes I got to prosecute people. That's my job, you know. But I'm going to still make sure that in those prosecutions is built in fairness, that people are going to get the fair shake that they need to make sure that the right outcomes happen. So it's a lot of work. It's hard work, sleepless nights. And I got to tell you, these last two years after COVID or during COVID has been devastating to the Bronx community. And I'm just thinking outside the box and partnering with whoever I can so that we could work to make this community safe. And we're going to come back and talk about some of those challenges you're talking about. Uh, and what do you see? How do you do it? But Vanessa, you 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 kind of touched on it. And Darcel actually 
talked about the challenge that she was facing. If you had to say, what was what's your biggest challenge now, or what was your biggest challenge um, moving to where you are? Uh, I think for me, the transition from city council to borough president was wasn't a bad one. It was just a huge learning curve. I'm not new to city government, so obviously understanding the city's process, how the budget works, I'm uh, very familiar with that. But I transitioned from a staff of five to a staff of 70 <laughs> uh, and, and really creating a blueprint. Uh, the first thing I had to do when I got to the office was formulate my circle. So I announced my deputy borough president the same week I took office and my chief of staff. And then we established which units would be under their portfolio and then meeting with staff. I mean, there, there was a lot of, of anxiety because a new chief was coming in. A lot of the staff in the bar president's office have been here for 10, 20, and 30 years. So they were used to a certain style and way of working. So for me, it was about coming in and setting my tone, letting them know who I am, how I operate, and what I intended to do. So it took me, and I'm still a work in process, is still working, because January was just so busy with the horrific fire the first week uh, I started, and we're still dealing with those families. So it's been a little challenging in terms of just time management, but I was able to get the entire staff together. We had an all-staff meeting, and I spoke for about an hour of each subject item, where I wanted to focus expansions, new units, new initiatives, public-private partnerships. So we talked about a lot of things. But obviously, for me, the number one issue right now is public safety. Uh, there are too many Bronx sites and New Yorkers that don't feel safe. And that is my concern. We've had a wave of, of violence. Um, the Bronx has almost a little over 30% of the citywide crime, but we're only 17% of the city's population. So that in itself tells you that something is happening in the Bronx. So that's why we've been working closely with Darcel and her team, because we don't want to be reactionary, but we want to be preventative on the front end. That's why this budget that the mayor will announce tomorrow is critical for summer youth and a lot of components that we know are the drivers of, of crime when young people just don't have opportunities. So to me, I'm still building out the staff. I'm still doing some shifting of staff. And then also, I think for a lot of staff, it's boosting the morale. It's giving staff the power that they already have and, and giving them that initiative to take their, their ideas and run with it. You know, I am the bar president, so yes, things go through me, but I'm also all ears on what staff want to do and what they envision. Um, and so really making sure that while I did this work in the council with a staff of five, now we cover the whole borough and getting to know a lot of borough uh, specific issues in certain communities and, yes. and being kept up to speed on what's happening from neighborhood to neighborhood. And we asked you, Ronista, <laughs> the same question is, what's, the, what's your biggest challenge you see? You do it because you also, uh, you know, there's a big article about the power going <laughs> from Brooklyn. before. And, I and, saw and, that. And, oh, did you see that? Did you read that? Yeah. All that I power saw, coming out of yeah, Brooklyn. I saw it. Okay, by the way, I live I lived in I was Brooklyn. Yeah. from Harlem, Anthony. Huh? Harlem to Brooklyn. That's what they said. Right. Right. But you know what? <laughs> hey, don't forget my queens either. But but but, but, but we said one of your biggest challenges <laughs> has been, will be, and then we're going to take a break because we have, a, we have a, a, a labor history moment that, that I think you both gonna find it, all gonna find interesting. But go ahead, Ronise. I'll, I'll be quick. No, First, first, I just wanted to touch on um, Darcel, what she said. Um, so part of also what she does with um, our youth and making sure that we differentiate uh, people who have mental uh, health needs um, versus locking them up. 
um, are the judges. So as the Brooklyn Democratic chair, and I didn't even know this, um, I literally have a lot of, I wouldn't say control, but I have a lot of influence in terms of the people who sits on these benches. Okay. So we, we do, we do nominating, we appoint, we, we do a screening to see who's fit to be elevated. We help elect judges. And again, it's, it's part of the whole universe um, in terms of, you know, what kind of people we're going to put in the bench who's going to be deciding our lives and our future. It's, it's, it, it's a big, big impact. And so um, I know we've been trying to get more black men on the bench. Um, well, black women have been rising on the bench. We're very, very, very excited, but we want to elevate them to the supreme level. Okay. Um, so we're trying to build that pipeline, getting more black attorneys um, to be interested in running or be appointed, showing them the rope, showing them the process in, in, in the judicial. So, but from a Brooklyn standpoint, um, look, <laughs> I think the power was building before I came. Um, you know, you have a Hakeem Jeffries and a, a, a Tish James and the mayor, Eric Adams, who who's been there for a very long time, um, who's been uh, paving the way, who's been um, uh, finding their way through politics, working different levels. Um, I came in um, doing my thing. And next thing you know, you have a public advocate, a mayor, <laughs> an, an AG, and probably the next, uh, uh, um, the next speaker of the house uh, who's all from Brooklyn. Um, Brooklyn is a place to be. Uh, people come to a very diverse um, borough <laughs> where you will find a place, you'll find a home, whether you want to buy a house or whether you want to rent an apartment. We, we have backyards, <laughs> but we also have our share of challenges. Um, um, as Vanessa said, you know, gun violence has been skyrocketed. Um, also in uh, many parts of Brooklyn, um, skyrocketed in my district. Uh, we are dealing with gangs as well. We are dealing with poverty, we are dealing with a housing issue. I mean, homelessness is huge. Um, and, you know, all of these things um, uh, play a part in our, our public safety, in, in our crime. And, you know, as a legislator, uh, part of our role is to, you know, be in Albany and make sure that we write legislation that will be equitable um, and, um, again, recognize the people who need help uh, versus the people who um, get locked up. We, we've worked on raising the age, you know, many years ago, 16 and 17 year olds were being locked up for nonviolent crime. We changed. We, New York State was one of the only states, us and North Carolina, that were still prosecuting young kids as adults for petty crimes. That was a problem. Um, we have revamped, which still remains to be very controversial, the bail reform. Um, we instituted um, policies and legislation where just because you're poor doesn't necessarily mean that you got to be held in Rikers Island um, because you don't have the money to pay uh, for representation. And that's a big controversy that's going on right now um, in terms of, you know, judges having discretion or not enough discretion. Um, we've, we've worked on speeding up the trials and, and speeding up the discovery. Again, going through that whole process uh, people were just waiting forever for no reason. Um, and so we put time limits. So, you know, we've been doing a lot of things. Um, I think 
as a Brooklyn Democratic leader, this is what I'm talking about, making sure that we don't lose um, who represents us. We don't lose our voices. We need those voices to be elected on the ground so that they can then turn around, go to Albany, go to, go to the city or even go to the federal and write legislation that will change our lives. It's very, very important. A lot of these criminal justice reforms, uh, housing reforms, um, 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 just a whole bunch of different reforms have played a significant role in how we live um, today. You know, um, we're not necessarily being evicted immediately. There was an eviction moratorium. Um, we understand that there were funding that needed for to help the, the, the renters, the tenants, and the landlords. Um, we also know that there's a group of people who's been excluded, like the immigration um, workers. And people who are not necessarily undocumented would have been working in restaurants. The hospitality business has been truly compromised, and a lot of these people um, did not get any uh, unemployment insurance. So, so we, you know, we fought for two billion dollars for the excluded workers. So again, it's 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 a lot, and and that's our role. And it becomes challenging. Let me tell you when it becomes challenging. It becomes challenging because you have distractors who are always going to try to break you down. Um, I am the first black woman, again, um, as a democratic leader. Um, I don't think my predecessors have done the type of work that I've done with the party, making it more transparent and accountable, um, making it more, getting more people involved. But the point of the matter, you have, you have people, racist people, um, who are dressed in um, sheep clothing, who make believe they're for the people, but they're not. They're for the power. They're for taking the power away from you. And it's constant attacks. And I'm telling you, my mom passed. She left her spirit with me. My ancestors' spirits are with me to be strong, to be a shield to the people, to our people. We have a commitment and to win and fight, okay? I was raised in learning how to fight, fight for us, fight for our rights. My ancestors, that's what they did. They fought and fought and fought and continue to fight. So um, so it's going to continue being um, a challenge. You know, there's a lot of misogyny out there. Sexism mm -hmm. is real. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I know Vanessa was dealing with that. You know, they were like, oh, she's black. How could she win the Bronx? She's a woman. Yeah, how could she win the Bronx? No, mm -mm, no, she can't. She's a black woman. You know, I know what she was going through and I know how she felt. We we're all feeling it. And we're still going through that. Just because we've reached to a certain level, leading doesn't mean that we're not facing racism, sexism, misogyny, all of that. It's, it's, it's continuous. And we just have to continue to look in the mirror and say that, that we have a job to do. Let's continue. Let's not be distracted and be focused and do the work of God. So, so I'm going to take you back 53 years. We're going to take a quick break. And we're going to a labor history moment.
Shirley Anita Chisholm was born in Brooklyn, New York on November 30th, 1924, when she graduated from Brooklyn College and earned a master's degree at Columbia University. Chisholm was the first African-American woman to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1969 to 1983. Prior to her service in Congress, she served in the New York State Legislature. Shirley Chisholm had long been known for breaking barriers. She was the first African-American woman to seek a major party's nomination for U.S. president. During her run, Chisholm pushed a platform focused on racial and gender equity, elevating those issues to the national stage. Her slogan was, unbought and unbossed, illustrates her outspoken advocacy for women and minorities. She campaigned throughout the country and was on a ballot in 12 primaries in what largely was an educational campaign. She received 152 delegate votes at the Democratic National Convention. Of her legacy, Chisholm once said, I want to be remembered as a woman who dared to be a catalyst of change. If they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Thanks for listening to Studio 371 with President Anthony Wells. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, www.mightyunion.org. Or please leave us a review on iTunes. Until next time, Union Strong, Union Proud. Union Strong, Union Proud.